I wonder if you've ever asked for something and then gotten far more in return than you bargained for. This happened this summer to a man from England who is an avid World Cup soccer fan and specifically a fanatic of Team England. He was disappointed to learn that he'd been scheduled to work during, a, during one of his team's early round matches versus Tunisia and not wanting to miss a second of the action, he turned to his girlfriend, a London law student, and asked her to watch the broadcast and then tweet regular updates of the game's progress so that he didn't miss a second of the action. He told her this was a very important ask because, of course, the World Cup only happens once every four years, and this was a prime year for his team. They were predicted to go deep into the bracket, if not all the way to the final game, and so he wanted to walk with them as they progressed. The good news for this guy was he got what he asked for. The girlfriend posted hundreds of tweets throughout the two-hour match. The not-so-good news was that these updates came from the perspective of someone who didn't exactly share his passion for or understanding of the game. And so it looked a little something like this. About 20 minutes into the game, she said, and a yellow card for the England player. Which one? We don't know. The player with the yellow card looks sheepish. Good to know. We're 34 minutes in, and everyone's hair is still holding up well. <laughs> Tunisia score. Free kick for England. Whether they made it or not, who knows. This time, an English man received a light tap and fell down violently. <laughs> there was a huge missed opportunity there for Team England. What it was? Don't know. A Tunisian man is on the floor. Looks like he got hit in the hair. The referee is uninterested. The man with the injured hair is not pleased. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I can appreciate this kind of commentary. But then again, I once sat next to my husband at a high school soccer game and asked him if the player had been called for traveling. <laughs> I grew up in Indiana, wrong sport. So often when we ask for something, I think we already have in our mind's eye what we expect the outcome to be, right? And so for this gentleman, I would imagine that he anticipated his girlfriend would tweet updates about stats and scores rather than a running commentary on hairstyles or theatrics. And while this all makes for a pretty funny story, the truth is this kind of unmet expectation happens in all kinds of areas of our lives all the time. I was thinking about it this week and trying to remember when the first time in my life was that I could remember this happening, and I went all the way back to being eight years old. I walked into the kitchen of my family's home where my mom was preparing dinner and I said, can I help? And she quickly and gladly obliged by handing me a stack of placemats and plates, napkins and silverware and said, sure, set the table. And I stared at her for just a moment, pretty sure she hadn't heard my question. Because of course, when I asked to help, I was talking about cooking, pouring and stirring and creating and probably tasting but not doing the kind of manual labor my brother and I avoided daily like the plague. And this kind of unmet expectation, I believe, is common in our spiritual journeys as well. As we seek to grow in our walks with Christ and to know more of his character and his nature and ways, like Pastor Steve dissected last week, it's natural for us then to desire and ask for not only an increased knowledge of Jesus, but also a deeper connectedness of our souls to him, a sense of assurance that he can do and be and deliver whatever it is we believe we need along our way. 
And yet more often than not, I'm not sure we really understand what we're asking for in these requests or if we're truly aware of what such an outcome will cost us. And that leads us to the story we just heard read from Matthew's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount this story of Jesus and the rich young man. And while there are slight nuances in each author's account of this interaction, they are for the most part remarkably similar in their recollection. In all three, Jesus has just publicly blessed a group of children. Children who had absolutely no social status or influence in first century Israel. And he's now paradoxically approached by a man who had great wealth, power, and privilege. Probably wealth, power, and privilege of any imaginable kind. And yet he recognizes that while his earthly needs all seem to be met, there's still something that he's missing And so he approaches Jesus and asks, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Bless his heart. My impression is that this guy is used to dialing up, ordering whatever he needs, and getting it immediately. And so he kind of approaches this transaction, it seems, like standard business, asking Jesus, what is this going to cost me? What do we need to do to make this happen? It would seem on the surface that this guy is assuming the thing he's looking for is something he can purchase like an insurance policy or earn like a trophy for good performance. The very nature of his question demonstrates that while he sees something is missing, he believes it's within his control to obtain it. And yet biblical scholars help us to understand this interaction just a little bit more. They say that this is not just a plea for heaven on the part of the rich man. Instead, he's communicating a desire for spiritual wholeness here. That's something respectable, something we can relate to. It's an expression of a desire to grow spiritually, not just somebody looking to add to their collection of stuff like an out-of-control hoarder. And based on what we know about this guy, it's reasonable for us to assume that this man was a devout Jew, Somebody who believed deeply in the kingdom of God and who simply came to Jesus asking what he needed to do to be worthy of that kingdom. He didn't come to Jesus looking for a handout. He came willing to pay a price, asking what he could do to merit the assurance that he was seeking. And yet the question he posed was not met with the answer he was expecting, I don't believe. Jesus started this dialogue sort of like the Riddler, answering a question with a question, which is always my favorite way to engage a conversation. But in so doing, I think Jesus was addressing not only this man, but anyone within earshot, reminding them that no measure of human goodness could merit the type of assurance that was being sought here. He was redirecting the conversation away from the man and his attempts to do good things, and trying to point everyone back in the direction of God, who was the only source of true goodness. This perhaps should have been the guy's first clue that the answer to his question was going to be a bit more than he bargained for. Really, Jesus gave a pretty standard answer for a Jew living in the first century. He told the guy that if he wanted to do something, he should obey the commandments, and that in so doing, he would then reflect the goodness of God. And in a classic moment of human control, I just love this, the guy looks at Jesus and says, okay, which ones? Like this is negotiable, right? I love that, and I can so closely relate because far more often than I'd like to admit, when I ask a question and then I don't think the situation is going exactly where I want it to, 
I start to drill into specifics, hoping that I can ever so slightly manipulate the conversation, get it to land where I hope it would. You better believe that the next time I asked my mom if I could help with dinner and she agreed, I pressed in for some details before committing. But this request for details does not phase Jesus. He responds to the request for specifics by directing the guy quite definitively to commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Don't murder, don't cheat on your spouse, don't steal, don't lie, and honor your parents. And then he tacks on the end of the great commandment for good measure. Love your neighbor as yourself. Probably because that's a great summary of all of those commandments put together. And this guy takes a quick account of his life, I imagine, as he's standing there before Jesus. And then with a great amount of chutzpah, in my opinion, looks Jesus in the eye and says, no problem, I'm good in all of those areas. It's pretty amazing. We have no idea if this guy's assessment of his faithfulness to the commandments was accurate or not, though I know Jesus would have known for sure. But isn't it interesting that even if he was living a life of complete faithfulness to these very difficult, good ways of God, even if in addition to all of his monetary wealth and power, this guy also had great religious fidelity and righteousness, and yet he still recognized that he was missing something, and so he stayed in the hunt saying, Jesus, I've done all of these things, but what do I still lack? Have you ever been in that place before where you're sure you've done everything God has asked of you? You've deeply invested in your relationship with him, pursuing disciplines that are righteous and biblical. You've actively sought to know Christ and be a part of his church. Maybe last week when Steve gave us those four ways to get more invested in the church, you were checking it off like a list saying, I come to worship, I'm in a small group, I serve in the church through children's ministry or hospitality, and I invest an hour a week in public witness in my community. I do all of these things, and yet you still have a sense that something isn't quite right that something is keeping you from living into your full potential in Christ. And because you can't quite put your finger on the reason for this sense of incompleteness, you ask God over and over and over again, what more can I do? What else do I need to add to the itinerary of my spiritual life that will help cultivate whatever it is I think is missing? That's where the rich man was. And so because this guy came expecting to do something or to earn the thing he was looking for, I think Jesus very kindly adheres to his request and gives him what he asked for, something that he could do. He says, if you want to be perfect, and this is a good moment to pause because that word perfect in the Greek doesn't mean what we think it means. The word is teleos, and it doesn't mean unblemished. That's our definition of perfect. But it means completeness or undivided devotion. If you want to be perfect, Jesus says, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And it's very clear that that is not the answer the man had in mind when he originally postured the question. Jesus was not handing him a quick fix answer here or a piece of low-hanging fruit. And so quickly this becomes one of the saddest stories within the Gospels because the man walks away realizing that Jesus' answer to his question 
is far more than he bargained for and far more than he could do. I remember reading this story when I was a child in a book form like this. And I was so upset by the way it ended because I was sure that the lesson in this account was that Christians should never be rich. This guy loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. And so by golly, I better be careful when I'm an adult not to accrue too much wealth. Become a pastor. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but I didn't want to find myself in this position, right? And yet my childhood interpretation of this story from Matthew is short-sighted to say the least. We're not being told that in order to gain eternal life, we need to take a vow of poverty or that Christians can't possess wealth or influence. Nope. The issue is how these things or anything that we come to rely upon affects or influences us. For the man in this story, this guy who apparently was pretty upstanding, following the commandments, had done more than enough. He had the American dream and then some, right? The house, the spouse, 2.3 2, 2 kids, the dog, the 401K. He had it all, and it was this stuff that had become his crutch. These were the things that gave this guy his security and his worth, and so they prevented him from being able to fully rely upon Jesus as the source of all he truly needed. He asked Jesus, what am I lacking? And based on how the story ends, I think the thing he was lacking was faith. Faith is a funny thing because it's real difficult for those of us who have great privilege. If you think about it, we're not all, the, all that different from the guy in this story. We too live in a day and age and in a country and culture that has privilege that I think is often beyond our understanding. I was reminded just this last week that 70% of Christians today live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, all countries that in generality have far less wealth and freedom than we do here in the United States. We live in a democracy that has 41.6% of the world's wealth. And just to put that in context, the next country on that list is China, a communist state that has 10% of the world's wealth. And so the average Christian of the world today is described by sociologists as a young, poor, uneducated African or Latin American woman who, listen to this, has a deep but simple faith. Our privilege can come in any number of forms, in the form of anything that we possess that we've come to depend or rely upon, and anything that prevents us from fully relying upon Jesus for our needs. So this isn't only, the story isn't only about wealth or possessions, though certainly that was the hang-up for the man in this account, and it can be for so many of us. But maybe the thing you rely upon too heavily is your intellect. So you're constantly seeking to gain knowledge, wanting to know more so that you're always informed, always one step ahead of everyone else and able to engage any conversation. Maybe your crutch is technology, so much so that you would never dream of being without a phone or a computer or a tablet or some kind of device that keeps you in the know, informed and in control. Maybe it's your family 
or other significant relationships in your life. And that one's so tough because these are great blessings that we've been given from God. But other times you place a boundary on your reliance upon God because you've prioritized the trust and assurance you find in your relationship with them over your relationship with him. Whatever the case might be, I think we, like the rich man, come to Jesus with our privilege in tow and we stand before him asking him for something deeper in our spiritual lives. We ask him to grant us the thing we're lacking and yet I wonder if far more often than not, the answer we come looking for has to do with addition rather than subtraction or about what we can gain without having to lose anything in the process. The man said, what do I still lack? Implying, what do I need to add to my already ample arsenal of possessions and prestige and power and piety? And Jesus' answer was that the thing he was missing wasn't anything he could pick up or earn. Instead, it involved something he needed to lay down. Faith is difficult for those of us with great privilege, largely because we've come to perceive it as something that's built upon proof or added upon with experience. I need something, Jesus delivers, and then voila, I have a deeper faith. I am more spiritual. But if that's the case, if we're asking God to produce something that merits our increased belief or trust in him, then we're posturing our entire relationship with him as an if-then scenario. If you produce, then I will believe. If I gain, then I will trust. I stand here this morning before you guys telling you that I have been the, the recipient of any number of examples of proof from God, that he is at work in my midst, and that yes, my faith has deeply grown as a result of these experiences. But that is not what is promised to us. And so if that type of if-then scenario is the way we approach our relationship God with God, and if, if it's the way we approach him when we ask him for spiritual growth, then much of the time we will be disappointed. Because proof is not at the heart of faith. Faith is based upon who God is, not what he has or has not done, or what my experience with him has or has not been. The writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is confidence in something we hope for, not something we currently possess, and that it's being sure or certain of what we can't yet see, not something that's tangible or that we already have in our possession in other words, our reliance and trust is in something that is invisible to us. Something that we've not yet discovered. Something that we choose to believe and trust in, in spite of the circumstances or the outcomes. And this is such a difficult thing. Far more often than we'd like to admit, we'd ask, we ask God for something more in our spiritual lives and we find ourselves in a situation much like the little girl who had a beloved plastic necklace, plastic pearl necklace that she won from the carnival. She wore it day and night and was completely enamored with her treasure until one night when her father entered her room at bedtime and said, honey, do you trust me? And she quickly responded saying, daddy, of course I do. Then give me your necklace, he said. I have something better for you. 
And seeing nothing in her father's hands, the girl clutched at the beads around her throat and pleaded with her father, Daddy, please, don't make me give them to you. Anything but this, my beautiful necklace. Then the dad patted the little girl on the head, kissed her goodnight, and left the room. The next day, he entered the, father's, or the daughter's room again before bedtime and again said, Daughter, I have something wonderful for you. And then holding out his hands to her, he said, Do you trust me? And she knew the drill. And so with tears welling up in her eyes immediately, she instinctively clutched at her throat again and said, Of course I do, Dad, but please don't ask me for my necklace. The father did not persist. He smiled at his daughter, kissed her on the cheek, and left the room again. The third night, he came back into the room empty-handed and again said, Honey, do you trust me? And having grown weary of this conversation and not really understanding why her dad persisted in this line of questioning, she reluctantly unwrapped the costume jewelry from her neck and placed it sadly into her father's hand. And the father smiled and he kissed her cheek and reached into his back pocket where he had a strand of real pearls that he had desired all along to give her. So often, we approach Christ saying, yes, Lord, I believe. Help me believe in greater ways. But then we tack on a caveat to that request saying, just please don't ask me to give up the things that give me security or status or control. Don't ask me for the things I can tangibly touch and employ in order to get the thing I can't see. The rich young man, we're told, walked away from this opportunity that Jesus presented because he was unable to lay down treasure for the sake of spiritual gain. And immediately following this account in Matthew, we read of Jesus debriefing this experience with his disciples. It's actually one of the better known parts of Matthew because Jesus uses this awesome um, use of hyperbole. He says, it would be harder for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples immediately and somewhat exasperatedly respond like I think I might, saying, so who then can be saved? Who on earth, they're asking, can lay down the things that give safety and security and stability and comfort and worth in exchange for something they can't see, something that they're just supposed to hope and believe is true? And Jesus responds by saying, you're right. In and of yourselves, you cannot do it. It's only possible, he says, with God. Only with God's help can we willingly recognize the things we possess that prevent us from fully trusting him to provide for our needs. Only with God's help can we willfully surrender these things, the stuff that we can touch and see and hold on to, and trust that in so doing, God is going to replace them with something far greater, something that is lasting and eternal, that will bring him glory and honor. This kind of release of these things that prohibit and stifle our spiritual growth require faith. Because faith, as Hebrews said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so at the conclusion of Matthew 19, Jesus assures his disciples, these people who have literally given up everything to follow him and who had great faith that Jesus was who he said he was, he tells them that their willful subtraction would grant them the addition of their greatest desire, life eternal with him. 
That's the thing that Jesus desired for the rich man. Though sadly, his lack of faith prevented him from letting go of his treasure for it. This is the thing Jesus desires for each of us. That we would willingly lay down anything in our lives that tempts or distracts or prevents us from fully relying upon him. And this is especially difficult for us who have so much. Last week we were reminded that when we leave a worship service, we should ask the question, not what did we gain, but what did we leave behind? And it strikes me that this is the same question we must ask ourselves if we desire to have increased faith. What do you need to release or subtract in order to gain all that God has for you? What is the thing or the privilege in your life that is presenting a barrier to you in growing in your relationship with Christ? As we close this morning, I want to encourage you to bow your heads And in a moment of reflection, identify that thing. Identify the thing. Be specific and honest with yourself. Once you have it in mind, ask yourself, why is releasing this thing so incredibly difficult? How long have I been holding on to it and allowing it to getting in the way of putting my full reliance upon Christ. This step in the process is as far as the rich man got, my friends. But then he quit because his dependence upon his possessions and his power and his piety had grown just too strong, so strong that he no longer believed he could possibly let go of it. So as you've reflected on these two things, I want to also encourage you, don't stop there in your pursuit. Take a next step. Ask yourself, what is one thing I can do to begin laying down this thing that is standing in the way of my spiritual growth? What is one step closer I can take to Jesus? And then who is one person that I can let know of this desire of my heart? One person who will... Be included in your journey of faith, who will help you stay accountable to walk toward Jesus instead of turning away from him. Jesus, you said that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in your kingdom. And that to lose is to gain. And while it is so hard for us to live in accordance with things that seem so foreign to our earthly experience, we pray that you would give us increased faith. Increase courage to trust and believe, to believe in your provision, in your sovereignty, in your lordship, because of your promise and because of who you are, despite our present experience or circumstances. We believe that this is possible with you, God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our promise and our hope. Amen.